Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. You may have noticed my intro song is a bit different. That's because I'm changing it up. That's I think that's going to be the new Hell No, a true crime podcast intro and exit song. You may notice my audio sounding a little crisper, a little clearer. That's because I've got a new mic. Well, not new to me. I got it secondhand and I love it. It's got a boom arm. I can sit back. My audio should be clearer. I'm hoping. This week, I would like to thank a listener. I would like to thank Pauline. She's been an avid listener to my podcast for a while now and she also puts up with me talking her ear off about the cases I research every week. So thank you, Pauline. This week, I'm going to do a double episode. Since my two-parter was released a week apart, part one, and then a week later, part two, I thought I would cover two cases this week in one episode. And these cases do have quite a few things in common. And you will see what I mean when I get into them. There is a warning for both of these cases. So I'm going to say that at the beginning of this episode, they do involve sexual assault. The first case I'm going to talk about is the murder of Amy St. Laurent in October of 2001 in Portland, Maine. I didn't even know there was a Portland, Maine. Every time I think Portland, I think Portland, Oregon. But nope, there's a Portland, Maine. Amy was 25 years old when she went out on a Saturday night on October 20th in 2001 in Portland, Maine, where she lived. Her friend was visiting her from out of state and she wanted to go out and have some fun in old Portland. So every source kept saying old Portland. People from there, I guess, call this area old Portland, which is what I'm assuming is what all the locals possibly call the area. So she and her friend, they they went there. Her friend Eric had met Amy a few weeks earlier when Amy was visiting friends in Florida. Amy and Eric, they hit it off. They weren't dating, but I'm not exactly sure their relationship status, to be honest. I'm assuming it was like a hanging out, kind of seeing each other situation, but not serious. But you know, who knows? Maybe one day it could go somewhere. But at this stage in things, it, they were still getting to know each other. Around 10 a.m. that night, Amy and Eric went to a pool hall in old Portland. Amy played pool and she met some people there. She didn't know these people. She literally met them there for the first time and she was playing pool with them. Later that night, they headed over to the pavilion, which is like a dance club in the area. And the people she had met at the pool hall, they were also there. So maybe it's like a common thing to go play pool and then go to this dance club later because that's what seemed to have happened here at some point eric loses sight of amy and before long the bar was closing up and eric was waiting outside for amy but he never saw her leave so it's possible she had already left but he's confused because they went there together and her bag and her keys were in his car and not only that but eric was supposed to be staying with amy in her apartment that night and he had done so the night before. I don't know the full situation here. So Eric drives back to Amy's house and even though he has her keys, he doesn't go inside, he sleeps in his car and he only goes inside in the morning to drop her stuff off before he heads out. Amy's mother finds it alarming that she's not home on Sunday because Amy would never let her precious cat go hungry. And as a dog owner, I resonate with that so much. Any pet owner who loves their animal knows that overwhelming feeling of needing to provide for them. And Amy loved her cat. So Amy's mother reports her missing that day. 
Monday rolls around and Amy is not at work. Amy, she would never miss work without letting them know. She was hardworking and in a documentary I watched on this case, people described her as reliable. Everyone took this serious immediately. Amy's family were hanging out missing posters with her face and her details on them up around town and police were looking into her disappearance as well. The guys who were playing pool with Amy, they see the poster and they call police to tell them, yeah, we had seen her last night. And in, in fact, at the pavilion, she told us that she had lost her friend and all her stuff was in his car. And they had also said like they, before that, they had been playing pool with her. So I'm not going to mention this guy's name yet, but he, at first, he didn't want to call police to, to tell them that she was at this after party with him but his friends were like man you have to like she is missing you could help find her so that's why he did it because his friends were like you have to and at the time this information was never released to the public and even if they said like oh we're speaking to people or whatever they would have never mentioned their names so this guy, he goes in and he talks to police and he says when Amy told him she had lost her friend, he offered her a ride to a party at his friend's house. And she said, yeah, okay. But later on that night at the party, which I think was more like a couple guys having some beers, it wasn't really like a, a party. Amy had asked for a ride back to the pavilion to see if she could find her friend Eric. And the guy tells police he dropped her off outside the pavilion around 2 a.m., which is an hour after it closed, which is an hour hour after all the bars close basically the whole street closes at, at 1 a.m so by 2 a.m it's desolate and that's where his story ends there's no eyewitnesses to confirm this that he had actually dropped her off on that street so police are then they're like okay police don't release this information to the public like i said earlier because why would they tell them at this point they're just talking to people this is just a guy saying he saw her last which of course it raises flags the last person to see somebody who has disappeared or has been murdered they're always a high priority for police to talk to police are also looking at eric because they think well maybe he was mad that she ditched him or whatever but eric he was soon cleared when his story was verified police have another interview with this guy and at this time this guy he won't agree to a polygraph which i mean that is smart because mm, those things can say someone's lying when they're not and they can just be very unreliable. But this guy also refuses to let police search his car, which can be seen as, hey, this is a free country, I've done nothing wrong, or it can be kind of seen like, hey, I have something to hide, so you can't search my car. But police, they have to let the guy go. So they let him go, but he is high on their suspects list. They got a folder of this guy. We're now five days into the investigation at this point. And officer Joe Laughlin, he has been on this case since day one. And he's feeling like, oh, we don't really have anything to go on. We don't have anywhere to look. We don't have any questions to ask. We don't have any leads. So he's feeling a little bit lost, a little bit maybe desperate at this time. So he reaches out to Vicki Monroe. Vicky, she's not a police officer. She's not a private eye. She doesn't even know Amy. But Vicky, she has a radio show in the local area where she speaks to the dead and she passes on messages to their loved ones. Laughlin sees no harm in trying. So he calls Vicky and the information she gives him 
aids the investigation in ways he never imagined. Vicki Monroe was born with the ability to speak to the spirit world. And in 2014, which was after this case, she had a show called Cell Block Psychic, where she would speak for the victims to their murderers on death row. Vicki has helped police close cold cases. Um, so I'm getting this from her website, which I will link, but I couldn't find the exact details on which cold cases. I would have liked to go into those, but I couldn't really find them. I couldn't find them at all, actually. She has a PhD in holistic health, and she grows herbs and natural medicine, and she seems like all-around fucking magical. If you're skeptical of her abilities, just wait and see. Police, they cannot explain what they are hearing from Vicky on the other end of the phone. And in an episode of Psychic Investigators, she recounts the details, saying that as soon as Officer Laughlin mentions Amy's name, she became emotional and Amy appeared to her. Vicky describes a gray sweatshirt with something written on it. She even reads what it says, Pratt and Whitney the company Amy worked for. If you're like me, you're thinking, you're thinking, well, she probably saw a missing persons report. And in that report, maybe it described the last thing that Amy was wearing. Okay, fair enough. That was my thought, maybe. But then she tells them that Amy was murdered and that Amy keeps saying J, 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 J over and over again until finally she says the name Jeff. Jeff is the man at the top of the suspect list, 21-year-old Jeffrey Gorman. That's the guy police have interviewed twice. That's the guy who was the last person to see Amy alive. That's the guy who claimed he dropped her off by the Pavilion nightclub at 2 a.m. That's the guy who refused a polygraph and the search of his car. Vicky had no way of knowing that man's name and that he was being questioned by police. I'm not sure if it's in this same phone call or later, but Vicky also tells police that Amy is in an area with lots of trees. It's very dense forest. She says there's water there. She can hear it. She says there's a house nearby and the murderer, he's very familiar with this house. He's connected to this house somehow. Vicky also tells police that Amy told her that she's under something and she can't get out. And then one last haunting detail Vicky tells police is that they will find Amy's body before the first snowfall of the year. Police looked into Jeff and they see that he has a criminal record in other states. He he's he's not a clean cut guy by any means. He's got a record. They also find out that Jeff's mother lives nearby on a property where Jeff also lives. This property has a large pond on it and is covered in dense trees. Vicky had no way of knowing any of this. Police know that Jeff was in the area of his mother's house that night Amy disappeared because he had been pulled over earlier in the early hours of the morning between 2.45 a.m. and 3.14 a.m. I don't know the exact time because different sources say slightly different times. So it was it was in between 
that time. So he said he dropped Amy off at 2 a.m. By between 2.45 and 3.07 a.m., he was pulled over by police near his mother's house because he had a tail light out or he had a broken light out on his car. Then an unknown caller calls police. This unknown caller tells police that Jeff never cleans his car, but after being questioned by police, he miraculously cleaned it. Not just tidied it up, but he cleaned it to professional standards. And to this anonymous caller, that raised a lot of flags because apparently this was very significant because he never cleaned his car. It was actually known that he was like, hmm, my car's a piece of shit. Why would I clean it? And all of a sudden he just cleans it to such a high standard. Enough for this person to call police and say, this is weird. Which of course makes police suspicious. Police notice that Jeff is changing his appearance. He's shaving his head, he's getting tattoos. I believe he even moves out of the area at that time as well. Or we will see he does he does get out of that area at some point. Six weeks into the investigation, now early December, police are searching Jeff's mother's property. And they are searching with a massive search team and cadaver dogs. They notice a bit of ground. It's feeling a little bit soft. They, you know, they're like, hey, this ground looks like it's maybe recently been dug up and then put back together with something like a shovel. When the dog comes around, it hits on the spot. December 8th, police dig in a little bit. Just they're like, what's going on with this soft spot? So they start digging in, getting their hands in there, and they can feel that there is a body under there. Then they start to carefully excavate the area. So now they're like, let's see what's going on in here. We need to do everything professionally here. We need to make sure that this is done perfectly because we don't want to ruin any evidence. So they carefully start to excavate the area when they come to a piece of plywood. When they lift up the plywood, they uncover the body of a young woman wearing a gray sweater with the text Pratt and Whitney on it. It wouldn't be until later when dental records confirmed it, but it was Amy St. Laurent. That same day, which was a Saturday, when they had discovered the young woman under the piece of plywood and and excavated her as police were walking out of the wooded area, the first snowflakes of the year started to fall. I'm not even kidding you. That is what happened. Vicky predicted it. And this snow... These little snowflakes, eventually it accumulated into a a pretty big snowstorm. This is when I get shivers because Vicky predicted everything that had happened. She predicted, she, she didn't predict, she said Amy told her, I'm under something, I can't get out. She hears water. She sees a wooded area. She sees a house that is in some way associated with the murderer, she says you will find her before the first snowfall. I just get shivers. Now police have to find Jeff Gorman because Amy's body has just been found on the property that his mother lives on and that he also lives on. But Jeff, he had fled to Alabama. The day after Amy's body was discovered, Jeff's mother is speaking to him on the phone when he admits to his mother to shooting Amy in the head. This is later brought up in court as she had testified in front of a grand jury about this conversation she had had with her son a day after Amy's body was discovered on her 
property. But later, she said she didn't remember the phone call and tried to basically take it back. But after much debate, they played the recording of her testimony in court for the when the trial's happening, and it was one of the biggest pieces of evidence they had because at that time, only the murderer and police knew Amy had been shot. And for Jeff to say he shot her in the head, not only says he knows she was killed by a gun, but where exactly on her body that she was shot. So this is very damning evidence because the only way he could have known that is if he did it. According to sunsentinel.com, in an article on this case, it said that Jeff's mother had tried to have him committed to a mental health facility when he was 14 years old. And she told a judge that he was violent towards her when, quote, he didn't get what he wanted, unquote. In an article written by MainCrimeWriters.com, it states that Jeff, also known as Russ, as Russ, Russell is his middle name, and he often did go by it, but it said that he was boisterous about how many women that he slept with, um, and he didn't like to take no for an answer. And it also said in that article that it was known that he had been carrying a gun. Not long after the discovery of Amy on Jeff's mother's property, did police track him down in Alabama and arrest him on a fugitive warrant. But Jeff, he didn't go easily. He claimed to have weapons in the home and that he was going to kill himself. He, he said, I've got a gun and I'm going to kill myself. And this led to a four hour standoff until eventually they apprehended him. Jeff was charged with first degree murder. And according to seacoastonline.com, during the trial, Amy's father looked at Jeff and said, quote, you burn in hell, unquote. He also asked the judge for Jeff to be sentenced to death, even though Maine doesn't have that punishment. Her father thought it only fair that Jeff no longer lives. Amy's mother spoke at the trial as well, and she let it be known that Jeff should not apologize to her because he, he doesn't even understand the word sorry. Considering the court couldn't prove premeditation, so the maximum penalty, it wasn't an option in this case, but Jeff was sentenced to 60 years with eligibility after 51 years, which means he will be in his 70s before he is even allowed to try and get released. After the sentencing, Amy's great uncle Richard said, quote, I believe in an eye for an eye. It's too bad they don't have the death sentence, unquote. And I gotta say, even though an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, well, that's how the saying goes, you know, I understand his energy here. The death sentence would mean there's no possibility of parole. So even if a death date isn't set, they can be sure that he's not going to get an early release because you can't get an early release on a death sentence unless you die. So what happened the night Amy disappeared? Well, police believe Jeff was giving Amy a ride back from the party that she left the pavilion for to go with him when he tried to make a move on Amy and she refused his advance, making Jeff fly into a rage. They think that's when he assaulted, raped, and murdered Amy. It's unclear when he buried her on the property, but I read that it could have been up to two days later. As far as I know, Jeff has never told the truth about what he did that night. Later autopsy findings show that Amy had been drugged with GHB as it was found in her system. 
I then found a record on a website called caselaw.findlaw.com in an article titled State vs. Gorman. And although I can't say for sure if the entire article is accurate, it had some very detailed information about what went on in the courtroom during the trial and about this case. Again, I can't say whether or not all this information is accurate, but it stated a lot of stuff that was in news articles that I did verify, but a few things I only found in in that record. So there was a few things that I only read in this record. Like one month before Amy was discovered, Jeff had told his friend that they're not going to find her body and that they don't have enough evidence. Now, that can be taken extremely sinister, I think. And I believe he was telling his friend before he said that, I think he was saying something like, I'm innocent. They're never going to find her body. They don't have enough evidence. It's also stated that in multiple phone calls to his ex-girlfriend, he changed his story a few times, saying he dropped Amy off by the pavilion. But then in another phone call, he changed his story and said that he never dropped her off. His friends went to drop her off. And when they returned, they had blood on them. Then after Amy's body was found, he called his ex-girlfriend again and said he helped his friends bury Amy because they asked him if he knew of a good spot and he recommended that spot by on his mother's property. In this same article I read, it says that in that phone call where Jeff confessed to his mother, he at first said that two men had killed Amy and they buried the body there where they had discovered Amy's body on his mother's property to set him up. But then he changes his story to his mother saying he had taken acid that night. And when him and Amy were walking by the pond, her face turned into his mother's face. So he shot her thinking it was his mother, then buried the body three days later. I did not personally hear the recorded testimony that his mother gave to the grand jury, which was later played in court, so I can't be sure what was on it, but Jeff's mother tried to later claim that at the time of her phone call with her son, she was suffering from mental health conditions and she was on medication, so she didn't want her testimony used in court. Also, let's not floss over the fact that he thought that Amy was his mother and then shot her in the head thinking it was his mother, meaning he wanted to shoot his mother. If this detail is in fact fact, why would she ever want to go to bat for her son trying to prove his innocence? Amy's family held a memorial for her, and the Bangor Daily News reported that her mother, Diane Jenkins, said, quote, those who never had an opportunity to meet her missed a rare treat. Her family wanted to talk about all the good things that Amy had done and remember her life because it was a beautiful existence, unquote. Amy is described as kind, generous, optimistic, and enthusiastic, funny, and loved life in that same article. Diane Jenkins, Amy's mother, started the Amy St. Laurent Foundation, which included the proposal to train police officers to also be instructors to teach women to defend themselves, specifically in rape aggression defense. 
Diane also spent time going around to high schools to educate children on personal safety, which both of those things are very important. Diane was quoted in an article by Bangor Daily News, which is archived on newspapers.com, saying that when you're young, you don't think anything bad can happen to you. She also says that basically she doesn't want people to lose sight of, of what happened. It happened in their community and it could happen to anyone. So that wraps up the case of Amy St. Laurent, but I have one more case within this episode for you today. Like I said at the beginning, it is a double episode. In the next case I'm going to talk about, it also has a psychic who helped to find a missing woman. But in this case, police, they were not so welcoming. So hello and welcome to Hell Knows Double Episode. This case takes place December 15th in 1980 in Pacoima, Los Angeles, California. 31-year-old Melanie Uribe is on her way to the hospital where she works as a nurse. At 10.45 p.m., she stops at a red light in her truck when suddenly she is ambushed by three men who take control of her vehicle and kidnap her. A witness on the street saw everything, and I believe it was this witness who called police. At 5 a.m. on December 16th, so it's about seven hours later, her vehicle is found burning by a canyon called Lopez Canyon. Melanie has been reported missing at this time since she never made it to work that night. Um, and that was totally out of character for her to just not show up and not call. Now, with the discovery of her vehicle, and she is still nowhere to be found, police not only do a door-to-door -door search for her in the area, but they also search a nearby canyon, and they turn up nothing. Melanie is a single mother. She has an eight-year-old son, meaning there is a child at home depending on her. So for her to be missing, it means something serious has happened. I could imagine Melanie would never abandon her child, who she is the sole caregiver for. And that detail, it's just heartbreaking knowing there's a little boy waiting for her. Police investigate the scene where the reported hijack kidnapping had happened, and they find an old box of tissues on the side of the road. Melanie's friend says that box of tissue was in Melanie's truck, so police are sure that they can now connect the hijacking with Melanie's burnt-out vehicle. So, who are these three men who ambushed her? That afternoon, Etta Smith is at work packing boxes and listening to the news on the radio when a report comes on about finding the burned up vehicle of the missing woman and how they are doing a door-to-door -door search to, to find her. And Etta says that she immediately hears a voice saying, she's not in a house. Then Etta has a vision of where Melanie's body is. Since Etta Smith was a child, she couldn't explain how sometimes she would just know things that there was no way she could have possibly known. And she eventually confided in her mother as a child saying like, hey, sometimes I have visions and I just know things that haven't happened yet. I just like know information that there's no way that I could know. 
Her mother told her to keep it a secret, and she did. But now in her early 30s, at this time, the vision, it was just so clear and powerful. She could not shake the thought. It was as if her brain was obsessing over it, and it would not get out of her head. She went to police that day to tell them about what she felt and saw through her ability. She was worried they would think she was crazy, but she felt so strongly about locating Melanie, she went to police anyway. Etta, she never knew Melanie. She had no connections to her. And uh, as far as I know, she didn't even know anyone who knew her. When she is talking to a police officer, he asked her to point out on a map where Melanie is. And she does. She points to a spot on Lopez Canyon. And the officer, he says that, oh, we haven't searched that area yet, but they will. And Etta says, yeah, she will too. Etta wants Melanie found ASAP. She doesn't have time for police officers to eventually get to it. She wants it done now. A half hour later, Etta Smith is standing beside Melanie Uribe's body in Lopez Canyon. After she finished talking to police, she went to search the area. First, she went home to get her two children and her niece. Her niece was 21. Her children were eight and nine years old at that time. And in an interview with Oprah, she says she wasn't thinking properly and shouldn't have brought her children. She says she does feel bad about that now because, you know, her children, they did see Melanie's body. So after she left the police station and got her children and her niece, they drove up to Lopez Canyon looking into the canyon to see if they could spot anything. Her vision was clear, so she knew the type of area she was looking for. And at one point, she pulls over beside tread marks in the dirt, and she gets out and she touches the tread mark with her hands. And she feels something terrible. She knows that these tire marks are connected to a traumatic event and she can feel fear. After driving about 30 more feet, her daughter says she can see something. So they pull over and walk into the canyon where they discover Melanie. They all run back to her vehicle and flag down a police officer on the road. And from there, the homicide investigation is in full swing. Since the only way Etta can explain how she found Melanie to police is through her visions, they don't believe her. They bring her and her children in for questioning, and here is where a lot of trouble started for Etta. Although they have no evidence to arrest her, other than she told police where the body was and then drove straight to it, which I can see why that looks suspicious to police. I mean, usually the only person or persons who can do that are the ones who are involved or, or committed the crime. So police, they place Etta under arrest and they hold her in jail for the next three to four days. I have read three days in some sources and I've heard four days in some. So it was between three and four days. At one point in the interview, Etta says to police, you think I have something to do with this? If I was capable of this, I would have killed my husband a long time ago. And I heard her retell this story on an episode of Psychic Investigators. And Etta, she, she's got a lot of sass, let me tell you. So I could just imagine the police's face when she said that to them. Etta even tells police that she will do a polygraph. And when they give her the polygraph test, she fails. But to me, this means nothing. A polygraph test results, they can, they can be thrown off so easily if somebody is nervous or if someone's on medications. There's so many reasons why they're just not accurate. Etta says when police threw her in jail, they stripped and cavity searched her, which is not a nice thing to go through. 
and she's innocent like she is just she's being accused of these things they're stripping her down it's just not a good situation etta helped police so she had helped them find melanie and now she was being treated like the murderer the next day the phone rings in the police station and when they answer it it's a woman who remains anonymous to police and she says she knows who killed melanie and she has the murder weapon she goes into detail about what the weapon is and this really intrigues police because they never released that information the woman is saying she has the rock that was used to murder melanie Two days later, another phone call comes in and it's an, it's anonymous again. This time a man saying he knows who murdered Melanie. And when this man meets with police, he tells them he knows more people who have firsthand information about the murderers. So whoever committed this crime, they're talking. They're talking to people they know about what they've done. From conducting multiple interviews with multiple people, they end up turning their radar onto 17-year-old Willis and I believe that's his last name in many sources they all said the 17 year old you know because he was under the age of 18 he wasn't named so I couldn't read any that name in the newspaper articles it just said a 17 year old but in the documentary uh psychic investigators the officer who worked the case said that the 17 year old boy's name was Norman Willis when Willis is brought in for an interview, he won't talk to police and he actually pleads the fifth, which meaning like meaning that's the fifth amendment in the American constitution. And it allows the right to stay silent and not potentially incriminate yourself. So he pulls this card on police and they have no choice but to uphold the constitution and allow him to be silent. But not all is lost because his parents they do not plead the fifth. Instead, they say, hey, why don't you check out his 20-year-old friend, Louis Morgan? And it just so happens that Louis has an outstanding traffic warrant. So it's not much, but it's exactly what police need to arrest him for now. So they do. This works out perfect for the investigation because he confesses to being involved in the kidnapping and also being present for the rape and murder, but claims he didn't want Melanie to die. He wanted to tie her up and leave her in the canyon while they made a getaway. He said they were looking to rob someone that night because they needed money. He also tells another name, 21-year-old Spencer Nelson. Lewis says that they saw Melanie's truck at, stopped at a red light and they saw an opportunity and they went for it, basically. He then describes what unfolded once they were in Melanie's vehicle. Louis says Spencer raped Melanie in the back of the truck. They then drove up to Lopez Canyon where they walked Melanie off the road. He then says it was Spencer's idea to kill Melanie and that he didn't want to. He suggested that they tie her up. And when he was walking back to the truck to find rope, he could hear Spencer hitting Melanie in the head with a rock and he also saw it. After the murder, Spencer took the rock with him. They all drove away in the truck and dropped Willis off at his house first. Then the other two, they went and burned the truck. After burning the truck, they each went back to their houses by way of foot. Lewis even brings police to where they had dropped the rock in the street by his girlfriend's house. The officer starts thinking about that phone call, the one where the woman claimed to have the murder weapon, and he put two and two together, and he goes over to... 
Lewis's girlfriend's house and and asked for the rock. He figured out it must have been her who called police with that tip. And he was right. It takes her 20 minutes to retrieve it. And she insists she has to go alone. So he's like, okay. 20 minutes later, she comes back and in a pillowcase, there is a rock covered in blood that she gives to the police officer. December 21st by 2 p.m., Etta is released from prison. She says she was treated like dirt and never received an apology for being arrested for the crime she didn't commit. And I am damn sure they never thanked her for finding Melanie's body. I'm positive they never thanked her for helping their investigation move forward so quickly. The officer on the case made a solid note that in the entirety of Lewis's confession, he not once mentioned Etta. Etta's name never came up at all. There was never any evidence he had a female accomplice. So Etta, she was thankfully cleared. And Etta, when she, about a year later, she ended up filing a wrongful arrest suit. And her lawyer, well, he must have made a very compelling case because she won. And she was granted $26,000 for pain and suffering, $1,100. $184 for lost wages and lawyer's fee. Um, so she, I mean, it must've been a good case. Etta, was, she was initially suing for $750,000, but I'd say she came out of that all right. The three men, Lewis, Willis, and Spencer, were arrested and charged for first-degree murder, accessory to murder, kidnapping, for robbery, and rape. Police believe that Spencer Nelson wanted Melanie dead because he had already been in prison for kidnapping and rape previously, but he had left his victim alive, which in turn got him convicted. So this time he didn't want his victim to live, thinking he would have a better chance of not getting caught. All three were served life sentences in prison. So I couldn't find out exact details of what life means in this situation or you know if they could be eligible for parole but if life means 25 years then they will all be out in their 40s and could possibly be free now as this happened in the 80s I looked for court records like in newspaper clippings about the trial and sentencing but nothing came up I was looking for more information on Melanie Uribe but unfortunately I couldn't find anything about a memorial or about who she was. I, I couldn't find anything. The only thing I could find was her age, uh, that she had an eight-year-old son, that she was a nurse. And other than that, she was described in that documentary as dependent, responsible, and reliable. I get the feeling she was a very wholesome and caring woman and that she will be missed by all of her loved ones, family, and friends. So that wraps up the second case in this double episode. Both these cases were aided with the help of psychics. So the question is, are you a believer in the ones who can speak to spirits? To all the murderers involved in this case, I say, hell no. If you're listening on Spotify, please hit that five-star option and the follow button for weekly updates on episodes as soon as they go up. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, please leave me a, a review and you can also hit those five stars. If you're listening on Google Podcast or through Anchor, well, just thank you very much and just keep listening. I really appreciate your support and I would just like to thank all my listeners. Please check out the Hell No, A True Crime podcast instagram page and you can even join the facebook group thanks for listening see you next week bye